When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Troyoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 178, The War in Wales, 1644. This week, we're going to be leaning heavily on the British Civil Wars, Commonwealth, and Protectorate website, uh, a website which has a lot of information on the Civil War and goes in depth on a number of uh, angles on the war, specifically in Wales, but also in Scotland and Ireland and England. So you can get a sense of what's going on in the larger war if you go to their website, which is located at bcw Project. Dot org would totally recommend it. It's really good reading. And like I said, a lot of what I found came from this site. So it is really, really good. So I would recommend. Anyway, moving on with the episode. Last episode, we talked a bit about the effect of the war on Wales and how the early stages of the Civil War was fought and how Wales supported the two sides and why. To an extent, scholars have stressed that as much as the Welsh gentry and merchant class had axes to grind with the king, they were, however, loyal to the crown for the most part. We've gone over and over and over some of the reasons why, but this episode will focus instead on how the war came to Wales, the battles that were fought, and what they meant for the nation. Wales became a target for the parliamentarians due to its position as both supplier of troops for the war and offering a safe haven for the king's men as well as a logistic spot, any spot for the Irish troops that were coming over to support the Royalists. So there was multiple reasons to finally take them on. In the summer of 1643, in the midst of the heyday of the success for the king, Richard Vaughan, the second Earl of Carberry, was appointed as leader of the king's armies in West Wales. Like many of the leaders in Wales at the time, they were brought in from the upper class, with little military background. Thus, they were not necessarily the best choices for the position, but because of their links to the civil gentry, they had important connections that allowed them to be raised to those spots. At the beginning of 1644, the parliamentary leader, John Poyer, captain of the Pembroke militia, succeeded in overthrowing the royalist mayor in Pembroke. He then seized Pembroke Castle and declared for the Parliament. Poyer was supported by Colonel Roland, L and I believe you pronounce the name, Laharn, but I could be wrong, Parliament's military commander in Pembrokeshire and a small force of about a hundred soldiers which defended the castle. Carberry initially imposed a blockade on Pembroke by establishing garrisons in Tenby, Haverford West, called Haverford at the time, and every castle and mansion around the town. Poyer was supported by Colonel Roland Laharn, as I mentioned, and 
the Parliament's military commander in Pembrokeshire continued to support the forces there as best they could. Carberry responded by mustering all available Royalist forces from the counties under his command and secured artillery and munitions so that his logistics chain was very well developed, which were then sent by sea from Bristol. His brother, Sir Henry Vaughan, supervised the building of an artillery fort at Pill on the north shore of Milford Haven to dominate the approach to Pembroke by sea and to deny the use of the haven for parliamentarian ships. By early 1644, Carberry had decided to starve out these parliamentarians, but their sea coast was undefended by the Royalists outside of this small fort. With this happening and this assault underway, by stroke of luck or hardship, depending on which side you're on, the naval forces of the parliamentarians arrived due to bad weather, pinning them at this very port. Captain Richard Swanley, commander of the Bristol Channel Fleet for the parliamentarians, and someone who was patrolling the Irish Sea to make sure that Irish troops couldn't land in support of the Royalists, is a sailor who has a rather checkered reputation. It was him that would lead the assault on Pill Island and Milford, stretching the Royalist forces enough for the commander at Pembroke, Laharn, to lead an assault out of Pembroke. They stormed and captured manor houses at Stackpole, four miles south of Pembroke, following it up by the capture of another fortified manor house at Trefloin near Tenby. February 24th, the fort at Pill surrendered, which then caused a panic in the garrison at Haverford West. Rumor was that they saw the coming of what they thought was the parliamentarians, only to find out it was actually cattle, and fled. The royalists evacuated the town and fled to Camarthen, allowing Laharn to occupy Haverford West unopposed. This was then followed up by the surrender of of the nearby Roche Castle to Laharn's forces on February 26th. Swanley had a reputation that in historical circles would be considered a war criminal in the modern sense. As an example, on April 23rd, he executed 72 prisoners at sea by tying them together and throwing them overboard, two of which were women, which was considered to be a especially despicable act one that the Royalists considered as unparalleled murder. However, on the other side of this, it was considered a very convenient drench to cure those barbarous wretches from the parliamentarian side of things. The parliamentarians launched a joint land and sea attack on Tenby, the sea forces arriving on March 6th, and for three days Tenby was bombarded by land and sea, Finally, the main gate was blown in and Laharn ordered an assault. The royalists resisted fiercely, fighting in the streets after they were driven back from the gate until the military governor, Commissary Gwynne, was mortally wounded. The discouraged royalists at this point surrendered, and 300 prisoners were taken and Denby was plundered. Please remember that at this time period, much like all medieval fighting before it, the victors basically would wreak havoc, even if they were wanting to rule the area after the fact. 
The Parliamentarian's conquest of Pembrokeshire was completed with the capture of Carew Castle, which surrendered to Captain Poyer on March 10th. By mid-April, the town of Carmarthen surrendered to Laharn, undoing all the progress that had been done by Carberry. Southwest Wales was now firmly under Parliamentarian control, which stopped any landings from Ireland. They were patrolling all of the approaches on the coast. Having lost the entire region under his command to the enemy, Carberry was recalled to Oxford and a new commander was appointed. In February, before this collapse, Prince Rupert took up his position as President of Wales in February 1644. The appointment had initially lifted the morale of the Welsh royalists. This was because, at this point, Rupert's military record was exemplary, and he was seen as a proven, energetic organizer and administrator. However, his policies of appointing veteran English soldiers to replace the unsuccessful aristocrat regional commanders, like Carberry, for example, led to friction with civil administrators. Obviously, the local gentry weren't very pleased when their local favorite was thrown out for someone who actually knew what they were doing. During this period, the first signs of war weariness began to appear amongst the Welsh people, who were wearing out financially and in personnel to supply this ever-increasing demand for men and material for the king's armies. Of course, cash reserves in a poorer part of Britain certainly wasn't helping because Wales was never well off at this point and had never been in a position to support the war effort forever. Um, and thus, they would start to feel the pull away from supporting the royalist cause. Rupert's tenure in Wales was brief, and it created a gap for the parliamentarians to take advantage. Because Rupert was sent north, it weakened the resolve in and around the area. The Earl of Denbigh, commander of the parliamentarian forces in Shropshire and Warwickshire, joined forces with Colonel Thomas Mitten at Wem around the 20th of June and marched west to attack the royalist garrisons at, at Ostwestry. Oswestry was a walled town which was defended by a castle under the command of Colonel Edward Lloyd. Lord Denby and Colonel Mitten approached the town on June 22nd, deploying cavalry in the rear to protect against relief attempts. They then sent a small force of 200 infantry to attack the royalists defending St. Oswald's church, which was laid outside of the town walls. The church was captured in 30 minutes and a number of prisoners were then taken. The army then blew up the town gate, which then forced the royalists back into the castle. The parliamentarian field cannon, surprisingly, had little effect on the walls of Austria Castle. That night, Denby and his officers resolved to burn down the castle gate with pitch. The next day, however, before the attempt was made, women in the town, who obviously were still there, even though the parliamentarians were controlling things, implored Denby to let them try and persuade the garrison to surrender. Although reluctant to accept Denby's terms, the garrison eventually marched out, surrendering their weapons and ammunition. The townspeople paid 500 pounds to the parliamentarians in order to avoid being plundered. A garrison was then left in the town, which the rest of the forces were then sent north. The fall of Oswestry was a serious blow to the royalists. 
and an obvious mistake as it opened up a route to mid-Wales for the parliamentarians and severed direct communication between the strongholds at both Chester and Shrewsbury that were held by the royalists. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. In late June, Sir Falk Hunky approached the town with 2,000 ground troops and 600 cavalry and two cannons. The Royalist advance created concern for the parliamentarians, of course, their garrison would be much smaller. Lord Denby sent Thomas Middleton with all the forces that they could muster from Cheshire to reinforce Midden. Against Hunky's orders, Colonel Marrow took the entire cavalry and attacked Middleton at Whittington, three miles east of Oswestry, where the Royalist cavalry were easily beaten. Without his cavalry, Hunky was forced to lift the siege and retreat to Shrewsbury. On July 2nd, after the crushing defeat at the Battle of Marston Moor, Prince Rupert rallied the remnants of his army and retreated back across the Pennines to the Welsh border, arriving at Chester on July 25th. As the Royalists once again tried to get recruits, the Parliamentarians prepared to attack. Middleton and Mitten continued to press their 
as they led 500 cavalry on a raid in Welshpool in Montgomeryshire, where they routed a Royalist cavalry detachment under Sir Thomas Dallison and plundered the town. Meanwhile, Prince Rupert's attempts to raise money and new forces in Wales had reached a limit, and many were doubting his reputation and his ability. His reputation for invincibility was destroyed at Marston Moor, and the troops he did get quickly deserted. Some of his veteran officers left him to find employment abroad or even join the parliamentarians. Logistics also dried up, forcing him to move to Bristol to try and refresh his army. By September 1644, Middleton and Mitten advanced from Oswestry again with 500 troops and 300 cavalry, seeking to establish control over the Upper Severn Valley. Instead, on September 3rd, they surprised and overwhelmed Sir Thomas Gardner's garrison at Newton in Montgomeryshire and seized a powder convoy on its way north from Bristol to supply the beleaguered garrison at Chester and Liverpool. The town of Montgomery was poorly defended by a ruinous, as it's described, medieval wall. On the hilltop to the west of the town, however, Montgomery Castle was one of the most formidable fortresses in the region. It was held by Lord Herbert of Churchbury, a noted scholar and patron of the arts, who lived in a mansion with his castle attended by a small retinue of retainers. Of course, Herbert was yet another one of those appointments who was a gentry from Wales as opposed to a military man. Keep that in mind as we go forward. By the time of the Civil War, Lord Herbert was old and in poor health as well, to add to all of this. Apart from attending the king at Oxford, he had played no active part in the war and had refused to cooperate with Prince Rupert or to install a royalist garrison in the castle. Middleton's forces then arrived, occupied the town, and called on Lord Herbert to surrender the castle, fixing a petard to the castle gate in order to coerce him. Terms were then agreed on on September 5th, and Middleton promised that no harm would come to Herbert or his possessions, in particular his valuable library. In return, a parliamentary garrison occupied the castle and captured the gunpowder which had been secured in there. The loss of Montgomery Castle was a serious blow to the Welsh Royalists, and within days, Major General Sir Michael Emerley and Sir William Vaughan gathered together cavalry and soldiers from Shrewsbury and the surrounding garrisons and then marched to attempt a counterattack. Apparently, they arrived undetected, and the Royalists approached Montgomery on September 8th, where the parliamentarians were on a foraging expedition. Surprised and outnumbered, the parliamentarian troops fell back to the castle while Middleton rode away with most of the cavalry to seek reinforcements, leaving Colonel Mitten to defend the castle. The royalists proceeded surrounding Montgomery, digging trenches and throwing up earthworks in preparation for a sustained siege. Middleton hurriedly gathered all available parliamentary forces for the relief of Montgomery. Sir John Meldrum withdrew a large number of his own forces for this, from a siege at Liverpool, and Sir William Fairfax brought troops from Yorkshire, and Sir William Barreton mustered from Chester with a number of troops as well. 
Joined with Middleton's cavalry and under Meldrum's overall command, the combined parliamentary army was around 2,000 troops and 1,500 cavalry, which then approached Montgomery on September 17th. Meanwhile, the royalists before the castle had been reinforcing. Appreciating the strategic significance of Montgomery, Lord Byron had marched from Chester and Sir Michael Woodhouse from Ludlow to join Emerly and Vaughan. The combined army of about 2,800 troops and 1,400 cavalry, along with 300 dragoons, brought together the full strength of the Royalists in North Wales and the marches. On the approach of the parliamentarians, Byron withdrew his position before the town, leaving enough troops to guard the trenches and siege works. Byron then deployed the bulk of his forces on a steep-sided hill crowned by ancient earthworks on the northwest of the castle. The parliamentarians drew up on flat ground two miles north of the town with the remains of Office Dyke and the river Camplad to protect their flank and rear. The two armies remained in position overnight, and on the following day, with no signs of any sort of battle, the parliamentarian commanders sent out nearly a third of their cavalry to gather provisions for the garrison of the castle. Seeing the enemy weakened, Byron took the opportunity to order a general attack, with the object of seizing the salt bridge over the river Camelad to cut off Meldrum's escape. While the ensuing battle is poorly documented, the initial assault seems to have favored the royalists. Colonel Trevor's cavalry drove back the outnumbered parliamentarian cavalry, and the royalist troops gained ground. Now the royalists threatened to outflank the parliamentarians and capture the bridge. In that moment of crisis, Major General Lothian succeeded in rallying the Cheshire troops to blunt the royalist advance with concentrated musket fire. From that point, the tide of the battle turned dramatically against the royalists, likely spurred on by a drop in morale at the reviving of the parliamentarians on the brink of collapse. Another possible reason for the turnaround may have been because of the arrival of parliamentarian foragers, which would have tipped the balance against the royalists. Either way, the parliamentarians regrouped and counterattacked. Middleton's cavalry charged, and the royalist cavalry then fled. Brereton's infantry broke through the royalist troops, and Colonel Mitten's forces sallied in and out of Montgomery Castle to overwhelm the royalists guarding the trenches. After an hour's fighting, the battle ended with the rout of the royalists, about 500 of whom were killed and 1,500 more taken prisoner. The parliamentarians lost a grand total of 40 men, including Sir William Fairfax, the commander of the Yorkshire Regiment. Montgomery was the biggest battle fought in Wales during the Civil War and a major victory for the parliament. The Royalists were never again able to muster a field army in North Wales and were forced onto the defensive, awaiting attacks in castles and garrisons weakened by the loss of men, arms, and ammunition at Montgomery. The loss of morale was also significant, and local gentry, previously loyal to the king, began to shift their allegiance towards the Parliament. After the battle, Meldrum went back to the siege of Liverpool and Brereton returned to Chester to tighten the noose on Chester. Sir Thomas Middleton consolidated his grip in Mid-Wales with an advance on Powys Castle near Welshpool. 
During the night of October 2nd, Middleton's forces blew the outer gate of the castle with a petard, and a small garrison of only 60 men surrendered. A shortage of men and supplies prevented Middleton from advancing further into the north of Wales, and to threaten major fortresses such as Denby Castle, or even supporting efforts that would have seen the recapture of his estates in Chirk and Ruthin. However, the capture of Montgomery and Powys established a strong parliamentarian base in central Wales from which Middleton led regular raids on surrounding royal garrisons. Much of the trouble that was seen happening at this time in Wales, rather than being direct combat being fought, it was more the fact that they were being worn down. And it's in this point and at this time where we see much of the change in attitude, as mentioned earlier, of the population, to some extent, probably just wanting the war to be over with, to other extents, looking at what was going on and starting to either be upset at the king and his strategy and tactics, or conversely, in seeing themselves slowly being ground down, losing more and more territory in what appeared to be a losing cause. And much like what happened throughout this time period, when that starts to build up, people start to abandon your cause and you start to lose what ground you had held and obtained. This is a constant problem throughout this period. Sides will be switched consistently as fortunes of various parties grew and wane. And it's because of all of this that we see such change happening in Wales as it was in England and Scotland and Ireland as well. And the support or lack of the same is different for different reasons. In Ireland, the support of the king is largely a religious one in fear of what was going on with the Puritans. In Scotland, the support of the Puritan cause was really a support of the Covenanters, who were not necessarily of the same religious background as the Puritan parliamentarians. The parliamentarians, on the other hand, of course, had these sort of unwieldy alliances with various groups, mostly to try and bring down the king before everything spun out of control. And more and more, as the years would go on, they would definitely continue to do that. So with all that said and done, as we move forward, we'll continue to talk about the way the war ends, a couple of the way things developed out of it, and then what succeeds it, and how that starts to affect Wales in a wholly different fashion, and how it brings something unexpected in the process. With that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. As well, if you'd like to support what I do, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. I really appreciate all your support, all your help, all your suggestions. They are very much uh, wonderful, and I thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello. 
This is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.